Hello everyone, and thank you for listening to this podcast asking whether the NHS and private healthcare systems can coexist and actually benefit one another, or whether the existence of both is simply causing more harm than good. Now, this question is multifaceted. There's a very complex underlying argument here, and to be clear, this podcast will not be able to simply give one definitive answer. What I intend to do is simply lay out some very straightforward facts and let you, the listener, decide which to give more weighting to. Now, I'm recording this podcast not long after the announcement of the results of the December 12th general election, and so I'd imagine there's a lot of differing opinion on this matter. So on the 5th of July 1948, under Welsh Labour Party politician and Health Minister Nye Bevan, the NHS was created. Interestingly, at that time, the Labour government insisted that a private alternative should still be open to the people of Britain. The main aim was to allow for freedom of choice. Now, historically, private healthcare has been associated with the middle and upper classes. The question some ask nowadays is whether this is still the case. People who choose to go as such private usually pay for their treatment through a form of private medical insurance or PMI. Bupa and AXI are just are forms of P- PMI. Now this medical insurance works the same way as home insurance or car insurance for example. PMI works on the principle that the lower possibility that you will claim the lower your premiums or payments are. So why would a 72-year-old patient's premiums be much higher than a 25-year-old's? Well, it's quite the opposite to something like car insurance. Well, as you'd suspect, it's all to do with age-related conditions. The older you get, the more susceptible you are to potentially debilitating diseases. Physical, mental, social. Basically, the older we get, the more risk we pose and the pricier we become. The average premium for UK private health insurance is thought to be roughly around 1,435 per year. So what if you don't have any health insurance? Well, according to privatehealth.co.uk, here are some approximate costs for some private care treatments. So a knee replacement, that could set you back as much as 11,400. That's over £22,000 if both knees go. Hip replacement, we're talking around 10, 10 10.5 to 11,000. Cataract surgery could set you back 2,500. Varicose vein surgery, again 2,500. Cardiac pacemaker insertion, just shy of 5,000 at about £4,925. A hernia repair could cost as much as 2,700. Skin lesion removal, just over a thousand, about a thousand and forty-five pounds, and a coronary angiogram, just over two thousand. Now, in your opinion, do these figures suggest good value for money? Because at the end of the day, something is only really good value for money if it is perceived to be by the person spending it. I recently gave a medical seminar on this topic to my own students and when I asked them this question they unanimously agreed that it wasn't. The costs for them were just too great. 
In 2018, the NHS turned 70. And since its launch in 1948, it has grown to become the world's largest publicly funded health service. One could argue that it is the most cost-effective healthcare system in the world in terms of the extent and quality of care it provides. But despite this, the UK's private healthcare market hit about £5.5 billion in value just about four or five years ago in 2015. And according to research, providers and commentators report an annual growth from that point of about 15 to 25%. In the 1950s, it's thought that only about 2% of the population were covered by PMI, private medical insurance. By the 1990s, that figure had increased to 12.7%. Problems with the NHS are widely documented. Have people just lost trust in the service? And, And why? Well, here are just a few possible reasons. The spread of hospital based diseases. And perhaps a perceived lower standard of care? Medical scare stories. High profile court cases where either the NHS has been negligent or perhaps a patient has just been refused treatment. Long waiting lists. And if the newspapers are to be believed, they aren't just long, but they're at their worst ever level. And here's one that might surprise you. Government promotion of PMI. So during the 1980s, as salaries increased, the relative cost of PMI went down and it decreased. So many companies began to offer PMI, along with things like company cars and cheap loans, as a perk to attract key skilled workers. The way they saw it, it was much more of a sound financial investment, I guess, to pay to have a worker treated as quickly as possible to get them back to work, rather than waiting for treatment on the NHS, taking time off, and reducing productivity. The Conservative government of 1979 to 1997 actively promoted PMI as they believed that if the NHS was the sole care provider then there would be no competition and thus no real incentive to improve services for patients. So let's get into the core focus of the podcast. Why would someone opt for private health care? And then what I could do is consider the reasons why one uh, would not want to follow that path. So we start by coming back to the point about waiting lists. Waiting lists are reduced. In many cases, the NHS will subcontract out operations to the private sector if it can't deal with all of its patients. So NHS waiting lists could be kept down. It's estimated that the NHS hires 40% of private sector beds. Subcontracting helps the NHS to meet the waiting list guarantees. Latest NHS reports say that more than 400,000 patients are now waiting more than the maximum 18 weeks after referral for treatment, up by 60,000 since 2014. Patient comfort. So don't expect mixed gender wards or lack of privacy in a private hospital. They provide relaxing and high quality rooms. You may even get an ensuite bathroom. You'll benefit from non-restricted visitation hours and a much greater choice of food. And you're more likely to be seen by the same consultant. Then there's the matter of patient choice. It gives NHS patients much more choice than they would have if the private sector was not used as a subcontractor. Users have a choice of consultants, 
hospitals and treatments. But an NHS constitution actually mirrors this. And I quote, Everyone cared for by the NHS in England has formal rights to make choices about the service they receive. These include the right to choose a GP surgery, to state which GP you'd also like to see, to choose which hospital you're treated at, and to receive information to support your choices. Now, you might not find the same depth of experience for complex treatments in private hospitals as you would on the NHS, but the NHS won't pay for some niche drugs because of the cost. You're more likely to have access to those sorts of drugs if you're being treated privately. If a patient does choose to go private, then the NHS still gets that person's taxation and national insurance contributions for nothing. In finance terms, this is uh, called a windfall, where money is received for little or no outlay. Private healthcare creates hundreds of jobs. People who work in the private sector will get skills training, which they might bring back to the NHS. And there are many construction jobs created when building a new private hospital, for example. It benefits local businesses who supply the goods and services to a private hospital in the area. Some opt for private, or the private path rather, to prevent what is called the brain drain. So here I'm talking more about the professionals working in that capacity. Some top medical staff would be tempted to go abroad to work for a much higher wage than than what they would get in the NHS. Allowing them to work part-time in a private sector boosts their NHS income, and so it might help to stop them going abroad. You could argue it's better to have half a top surgeon in the NHS than none. I've already alluded to the idea of keeping key workers, skilled workers at work, and the suggestion that private medical services improves competition and efficiency. Certain services such as laundry and catering, for example, are put out to private tender, and companies can compete against each other. This competition will lower prices overall, and the NHS gets to save on spending costs. Key workers in the economy are able to be treated more quickly, and they don't have to be part of an NHS queue as such if they go private. These workers are able to plan, if you like, their absence more effectively, and that will reduce the impact of their absence. I think anyone listening to this podcast with strong negative feeling towards private healthcare would have to concede that, like it or not, there are some real benefits to the system. So let's let's dig rather a little deeper to look at the reasons why someone might not want to use or support a private healthcare system. Well, for many, ultimately comes down to a matter of morality. It can be seen as immoral that money can buy healthcare It is argued that health should not be a consumer good and that all human life is equally important, regardless of the amount of money that a person has. Cost is the main reason why people stay with the NHS. It provides free treatment to millions, 365 days a year. The price of private healthcare varies depending on your level of cover and whether you use a pay-as-you-go option. Private healthcare insurance doesn't cover all treatments and your treatment will be dependent on your level of insurance. You might not find the same depth of experience for complex treatments in private hospitals as you would on the NHS. And then there's the expensive patients. So private health insurance is too costly for some people. 
it discourages the expensive patients by putting up the premiums or the payments. So the NHS is left with the treatment of the chronically ill, the poor, the elderly, the expensive and the long-term patients. The private sector plays on the image of the NHS as a second best, perhaps. There is a term that you might be familiar with, it's called a moonlighting. Moonlighting means getting paid by someone else on your employer's time. Some NHS staff who also work in the private sector may treat their patients, or private patients, during their NHS time. Moreover, most nurses and doctors are trained within the NHS at a significant cost. And at the end of training, these staff could easily choose to work in the private sector, which has paid nothing at all towards their training. A lot of new procedures and treatments are piloted and tested in the NHS. The private sector can get the benefits of this without having had that financial burden. It's something called freeloading. A certain number of beds within the NHS are kept for private patients, and this earns the NHS money. Patients in pay beds, however, require more attention from staff, so these pay beds are more costly to the NHS than just the ordinary beds. And some private hospitals do not have the very largest equipment, such as, I'm thinking like an MRI scanner, for example. They will rent time on these from the NHS. Again, this earns the NHS money, but the private sector does not have the initial outlay of buying all this machinery. Time used in this way means that fewer NHS patients are treated. Private hospitals do not have to bear the cost of expensive accident and emergency services. The private sector therefore doesn't have the cost of the ambulance service to meet. Accident patients needing emergency treatment are taken first to an NHS hospital and only later transferred to a private hospital if their condition allows. Many staff who used to work for the NHS whose jobs have been contracted out, find themselves with poorer working conditions, such as longer hours. And longer working hours in either healthcare system results in worn down and worn out staff. It creates a tired workforce, and tiredness leads to mistakes. So let me take you back to the original question. Can both healthcare systems coexist, or is one negatively impacting the other? There's no easy answer, but hopefully this podcast has given you a little food for thought. So all that remains for me to say is to thank you all for listening.